3: They trade in famine. A little dose of revolutionary optimism.
4: I think it's really important
1: to sort of express solidarity globally.
4: It really is a deal by corporations
5: for corporations.
1: The union forever defending our rights, down with the blacklist. If you think the ABC's left wing, don't listen to this program.
6: Solidarity Breakfast, 7.30 to 9 am Saturdays,
2: 3 CR, 855 am. Streaming and three CR digital, podcast or audio on demand, and of course the website
0: solidaritybreakfast.org.au.
1: Solidarity forever.
3: Good morning, Annie, here for the second in our Solidarity Breakfast summer season of programs. First up, we go to Katoomba to hear author and journalist Anthony Lowenstein talking at a rally for Palestine on the 17th of December about why it's so important to keep protesting against Israeli war crimes. This is followed by a voice from the Sydney rally on the same weekend. We hear an almost shaggy dog tale from Simon Hunt from the streets of Melbourne when he and his partner fell foul of Vic Pole and learnt up close and personal about how the police are using the new AI gadgetry. We hear from filmmaker Robert Connolly about his film Blueback, based on a Tim Winton novel which celebrates the environment of the Ningaloo Basin. It was up for an award at the 16th Asia Pacific Screen Awards earlier this year. We talk film and philosophy. We hear from comedian Fiona Scott Norman, who did a set at this year's Green Left Comedy Debate, emceed by Tom Ballard, which asked, should we welcome our new AI overlords? We finish with a word from South Coast Labor Council Secretary Arthur Morris about AUKUS and his hometown, Port Kembla.
2: This summer, wildlife are feeling the heat of climate change. Wildlife becomes stressed and unwell in hot weather and every summer, Wildlife Victoria receives tens of thousands of calls for wildlife assistance. You can make a positive difference to the future of wildlife by donating to Wildlife Victoria. Your donation will help us rescue and care for heat-affected native animals. The future of wildlife is in your hands. Donate to Wildlife Victoria at wildlifevictoria.org.au. Wildlife Victoria is a 3CR supporter.
3: You are with Annie on Solidarity Breakfast on your community radio station 3CR. As the gruelling death toll increases in Palestine, first we hear from Anthony Lowenstein, author and journalist, about why it is so important to keep demonstrating in Australia in support of the Palestinians. It follows with a voice from the Sydney Rally on the 17th of December, which outlines the horror of the over-70-year occupation. We thank fellow 3CR broadcaster from the Climate Action Show, Vivian Langford, the recordings elders
7: past present and emerging i am honored to be here i live with my family in sydney which is not that far away but i'm really glad to be here to share this important moment with you all because when we talk about palestine so often the way it's framed in the media is seen as the jewish community on one side supporting israel and the other side is palestinians Arabs, Muslims, it's simply not true. What I mean by that is, I am Jewish, secular but Jewish. And there's a growing number of Jews in Australia and around the world who are regularly saying, long before October 7, but certainly since, not in my name. What Israel, spent time in the West Bank and Gaza and lived for a number of years with my partner Ali, who will speak in a minute, and our family in East Jerusalem between 2016 and 2020. And one thing that became so clear in that period, although I obviously had some of these views long before then, was that what's happening in Palestine will not end with simple internal dissent. What I mean by that is that any Israeli Jew you speak to, any Palestinian you speak to, living there, will say, without outside international pressure, this will never end. Yeah. And the equivalent of that is South Africa during apartheid. And anyone you speak to who would talk to you about how that apartheid era ended will say, it did not solely end from opponents solely in South Africa. Of course, there were many black South Africans and some white South Africans, but it came from outside pressure. This is exactly the same as what is required now. Now what's happened in the last two months, as everyone knows, the utter brutality, devastation, probably at least 20,000 Palestinians killed, the vast majority of whom are civilians, is done with such a degree of recklessness and carnage, the only word for it is unmitigated war crimes. And until there is some kind of accountability for that, an Israeli prime minister, is an Israeli general, someone in some country, ideally like the Hague, they're waiting, I'm sure, for their arrival. Until that happens, this will not end. This has been the key issue for decades, that there's been no accountability whatsoever for any of the occupation. Zero. It's the longest occupation in modern times. And one of the things that I have investigated in my book, The Palestine Laboratories, to show how what Israel is doing in Palestine for decades is in some form Treating Palestinians as guinea pigs. Now what do I mean by that, very briefly? What it means is that Israel has been testing and trialing for decades, huge amounts of technology and tools of repression, which are then used to repress Palestinians, which is bad enough. But then it is exported to many other nations around the world, which view it as battle-tested. This is how Israel promotes it. So in the last half century plus, You have countless examples from Chile during Pinochet, to the apartheid regime in South Africa, to Guatemala in the 80s when they're committing genocide, to a range of other countries, to Myanmar in the last five years after they've been committing genocide, Israel is still selling weapons. This is what the Palestine Laboratory means. And it's important to understand that what's happening in Palestine, what's happening to Gazans today, and yesterday, and frankly for decades, but especially in the last two months, is happening in different forms to huge amounts of other people around the world. What happens in Palestine does not stay there. And the fear that many people are expressing more and more, this global outrage in the last two months, really reflects something that many of us have noticed for years. There is such a profound disconnect between our political leaders, whether it's Albanese or Biden, or whoever else, and general public. There's such a profound disconnect between that, that if it was up to the general public, there would have been a ceasefire call two months ago. This is not based on my opinion, it's based on what the public opinion polls are saying, including in the US. And in the US, what's been very clear in the last two months, there is increasingly a generational divide and I am generalizing here, but in general, the vast majority of American youth between 18 to 35 are profoundly against what Israel's is doing and are calling for a ceasefire, whereas many older Americans are supporting Israel. There are exceptions to that, of course. But in general, that is what's happening, which gives me some hope, actually, because A, they're the future, obviously, and secondly, that's reflected in many other issues, not just Palestine. I wanted to finish on this point that what has been so devastating and horrific in the last months is apart from what we're all seeing on our screens whether it's social media or tv the utter israeli brutality callousness racism and all that which we see clearly but what's been so heartening has been global solidarity The size of protests that are happening in many places around the world are the biggest since 2002, 2003 against the Iraq war. The biggest. Now, has it stopped the war yet? No, it hasn't. It didn't stop the Iraq war either. But again, this is the power, I would argue, of people protesting. It does profoundly impact not just those in power, but communities. The Jewish community is very split. Believe me when I say that, here and overseas, very sweet. And I would close with just saying that these kind of events, these kind of rallies and protests and understandings aren't just about feeling solidarity with each other, but it shows to Palestinians in Palestine, some of whom I'm in touch with quite regularly, both in Gaza and elsewhere, they see what we are doing. They see and hear and feel that solidarity globally. I'll leave it at that. Thank you so much. you,
6: Fully, Atuna, One, two,
8: three, four, we don't want your ready for.
0: Years old when my father heaved me onto his shoulders and took me to a protest on Beamish Street in Campsie. That day, he tells me, we were there to protest the massacre of 3,000 Palestinians by Israeli terrorist forces at the Sabra and Shatila refugee camp in South Lebanon. I was 16 years old the day I went home to find an image of a dead toddler with his dummy still attached to his clothing, being pulled from the rubble in a UN shelter in Ghana, in the south of Lebanon. I have never forgotten that image because my son at that time was about the same age as that baby, but my son was lying safely in his bed sucking on his dummy. In 2008, I was 30 years old and I heaved my then three-year-old daughter onto my shoulders and came to this exact place to demand a ceasefire. I am 45 years old today. I have seen once children that we carried on our shoulders at these protests, growing to young people and adults, like Asala, like Rayan, like Dahlia. And every time we need to come to the street to demand that the bloodthirsty State of Israel cease the indiscriminate killing of innocent civilians. It reminds me that a child born in Gaza, when my own daughter was 19 years ago, has not since they learned their first language and movement known any sort of freedom and they have lived their entire life under a crippling and illegal blockade and siege. What else does a child born in the last two decades in Palestine know? The targeted missile attacks on four children playing soccer on the beach? The massacre of ten children celebrating Eid in the park? The sounds of bombs and missiles exploding into homes in the blessed month of Ramadan as soon as the sound of Adan to break fast is heard. The bombing of some of the oldest churches in the entire world. The murders in international waters of Turkish humanitarian nationals on a flotilla delivering desperately needed aid to Gaza. Shame. The ruthless and cynical murders of local and international activists and peace protesters. Shame. The endless bombing of mosques, of churches, of schools, of UN shelters, housing civilians, men, women, children, the elderly and those with disabilities. Shame. The illegal detainment of Palestinian citizens making for Thousands of hostages held in Israeli prisons, the majority of whom are minors, children yeah. the checkpoints, the collective punishments, the starvations and sieges on the blockade and blockade on Gaza, the illegal use of white phosphorus onto a defenseless civilian population, yeah. the illegal settlements, the land theft, the apartheid, the massacre after massacre after massacre after massacre after massacre. After massacre the destruction of infrastructure, the displacement of millions of people, the bombing of hospitals and ambulances, the murder of journalists and UN peacekeepers and Amnesty International workers and medical personnel. Yay. The images in 2008 of eight dead Palestinian babies sucking on the toes of their dead Palestinian mothers. Yay. And the all too familiar images and stories of the, of the Samouni family on repeat. The Samouni family, who Israeli soldiers told to go into one home so that they could be safe. And once they were all inside, Israeli terror forces then shelled on and around the house, killing 30 members of the same family. Since 2008 alone, a child born in Gaza has seen five invasions and massacres perpetrated by the racist, Zionist state of Israel. In 15 years alone, This tiny area housing 2.3 million civilians in the most densely populated place on earth has seen the same acts of terror and crimes against humanity committed against them like we see today on five separate occasions. Today Israel has multiplied their attempts to finish off their shower. Shoah was first used in 2008 to describe what they wanted to do with the Palestinian people. Shoah is the Hebrew term for Holocaust. They have massacred 20 times the number of people that they did in 2008. Injured 20 times the number of people that they injured in 2008 and displaced 20 times the number of people that they did in 2008 alone. I have watched in horror as a cancer survivor myself who had to have her breasts both of them amputated to save her own life humans the smallest and most fragile versions of them children murdered by the genocidal terrorist state of Israel Yay! and yet for 75 years world leaders have been shamefully complicit in their attempts to justify these heinous war crimes and unconscionable crimes against humanity Yay! but you know what else I've seen you know what I felt in the, in, the, in the spaces between the skin and my bones I've heard the, the Muslim call to prayer. Of our palestinian brothers and sisters sounding from the churches in palestine i have heard our palestinian christian brothers and sisters repeating that if israel bombs every single mosque then the islamic call to prayer will come from every church in gaza and palestine I have seen the unmatched strength and resilience of our Palestinian brothers and sisters who remain heroically steadfast and who have shown us time and time and time again that they will never, ever, ever be defeated. And it is in solidarity with the heroic people of Gaza, of Palestine, that we stand here today and we tell our government in our loudest voices, that we will not stop protesting until there is an immediate and enduring and permanent ceasefire. We will not stop until the Israeli government is charged for their war crimes and their unconscionable crimes against humanity. And we will never ever stop until the soil beneath the feet of our Palestinian brothers and sisters bears witness that those who own the land of Palestine have returned to their homeland in peace and safety and have had all of their rights restored and returned to them. Today we tell the world and our governments and our Palestinian brothers and sisters that we are in our thousands and in our millions all Palestinians who will not stop protesting until Palestine is free from the river to the sea free palestine. Baseline, free palestine
6: ye azu la 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 sawfa nahya huna sawfa yahlu al naghm mawatini again سوف نبقى هنا
1: كي يزول الالم
6: سوف نحيا هنا سوف يحل كيد العدا رغم كل النقم سوف نسعى الى انت عم النعم سوف نرنو الى رفع كل الهمم بالمسير للعلا ومناجاة القمم فلنقم كلنا بالدواء والقلم كلنا You're
3: with Annie on Solidarity Breakfast on your community radio station 3CR. On the 17th anniversary of the imprisonment of Julian Assange, I was speaking to Simon Hunt, a long-term supporter of Julian, who told me an uncanny story.
4: So tell me what happened. Well, we're we're walking by there. Um,
3: We're talking about Saturday uh, of the grand final.
4: Grand final, yes. Well, Anita and I turned up there because we were going into the uh, library in the city, walking past the MCG, and I was carrying a picture of Julian Assange by my side and Anita was just um, uh, uh, holding a flag um, with Julian Assange's face on it and it was blowing lovely in the wind uh, beautifully in the wind and all of a sudden she was getting tackled by by the police and uh, and at the same time they tackled me and uh, you
3: said there were about nine nine there, of them
4: there were nine of them yeah yeah I actually counted eight but apparently there was nine and it seemed like a bit of a training exercise because there, was a, there were a couple of uh, senior senior constables and the other ones were young constables and they were doing all the aggressive stuff. And the older guys were sort of hanging back. It seemed like it was a bit of a training mission or something. Uh, like. And there was crowds of people? Crowds of people everywhere, yeah. And, um, they were and what ha- time was this? Oh, it, would have, uh, look, it would have been one thirty or something. I think it starts about 2, mm-hmm. a little bit before the game started. Uh, and they were manhandling Anita, and they are trying to st- rip her flag away from her, and then they, right in front of her, they broke this, the, the, the pole, the stick. Um, and then they claimed that and it was... And this
3: flag had a picture of Julian Assange on the top.
4: Uh, on the flag, yeah. So they, they, they were trying to grab it off her, then they broke the stick right in front of her. Then they tried to claim that it was a dangerous weapon, because since it had been broken, it had you know, sharp... Um, you know, it was sharp, it was broken, and, and, and um, then they handcuffed Anita and behind the back, which is always more painful. And Anita was complaining and at and, and, and one stage actually squealing in, in, in distress, um, and, um, oh, it was awful. Um, and uh, she complained about the handcuffs, and the, the young constable, who was very aggressive, we've got his name, um, a red-headed guy with a red beard, he... Um, I uh, said, oh, they're supposed to hurt. And they were a funny sort of triangular shape. They weren't the usual round handcuffs. Sort of, they looked like they were designed to cause you pain. Anyway, so finally they uh, they let her off. And then at the same time, they, they were demanding that I identify myself. And I said, look, I'm not driving a car. I'm not committing a crime. I don't uh, need to identify myself. I'm a free civilian. Um, and I'm not going to give you my identification I'm not going to give you my name and birthday and then they um, got out the, the iPad and uh, all of a sudden I saw a picture of myself on the iPad and then they said uh, 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 read out my address to me um, and I said oh, well very clever boys you know what a bit of facial recognition going on there is it And the picture of me was a, a recent picture of me on, the hat on their iPad. Then they called, called my number, and my phone rang, and I didn't know who it was, of course, and it was a red, you know unknown number. Uh, I didn't answer it, so then they called me again, and I answered it, and then sure enough, it was the policeman standing sort of two feet away from me. Uh, I could hear, hear my voice on his phone. And I was going, oh, well, that's very tricky, guys, you know because this old bloke was constantly telling me he was reasonable, and I was like, well, <laughs> it depends on how you define reasonable, really, because you know, I don't think anything you've done today is reasonable. And then he, when he, um, you know, did the um, photo identification, facial recognition of myself, he said, oh, "I'm also smart." <laughs> so there's a bit of a little bit of sort of um humour there. But the younger guys were just so aggressive. And um, and then uh, apparently Anita, who uh, did provide her identification, uh, one of the cops told her to tell me to to provide my ID and then they'll let it go away. And I I wouldn't budge on it. Perhaps I should have, because then they started writing out fines, And one for me and one for Anita, and plus uh, an official direction, which I've got photos of, uh, to move away from the area. Now, they claimed that because of some act of parliament that had been brought in previously, uh, that a sports precinct could be designated as the area surrounding a sporting event and that the legislation gave them the power to arrest anybody that was protesting in the precinct. And I said, well, that's very interesting, I've never heard about it, and there was never any signs or anything, and we're not protesting, so can we go now, please, you know? And am I under arrest? Well, how come I can't go? You know, you're detaining me, and it just... So anyway, eventually they gave us a fine and And tell
3: us how much the fine is. $385. Each?
4: Each. Yeah. Oh, and then we went to complain to the uh, police uh, headquarters in the city, in Berg Street. And they weren't very interested to, uh, at all. And they said, well, we just want to make a statement because you know, um, we've been assaulted. Well, I was talking about Anita. Anita's been assaulted um, and, uh, and, and uh, suffered abuse by these police and it's unwarranted. And, and they said, well, you can make a complaint online. And I said, well, I just want you to register the fact that we've made a statement here. And he said, no, no, I'm not prepared to do it. So then we went down to uh, Sandringham and we made another complaint in the Sandringham Police Station. And we believe that guy, although reluctantly, did take a record of the complaint that Anita had been assaulted by the police at uh, the MCG. Um, And then um, it's been going around the internet quite... A lot, uh, a lot of people are getting uh, very angry about it and so they should. Um, anyway, so that's what happened. But it was quite shocking, you know, we were we were quite traumatised afterwards. I didn't realise until afterwards how these things can sort of traumatise you. You know, we were sort of both out of sorts, if, <laughs> if you know what I mean. Yeah, I do know. Yeah, yeah so we are sort of you know, walking around like stunned chooks, sort of a little bit after, after that event. Yeah.
3: Yeah. Mm, it's like a shaggy Dog style, isn't it? And
0: even subtropical rainforests that don't usually burn we're actually on fire. We have
2: the obligation to care for country. So much forest burnt that around three billion animals are either killed or displaced.
5: The more we push back against the colonial apparatus, the more positive change we can have in terms of addressing climate change.
3: 3CR, stay tuned, stay radical. You are with Annie on Solidarity Breakfast on your community radio station, 3CR. Filmmaker Robert Connolly recently spoke to me about his film Blueback. Blueback is based on the novel by Tim Winton and stars Mia Wasikowska, Rada Mitchell, Eric Banner and a giant blue groper. Blueback was filmed in the spectacular natural landscapes and marine worlds of Western Australia's Bremer Bay and UNESCO World Heritage-listed Ningaloo Reef. It was up for an award at the 16th Asia-Pacific Screen Awards, which are sort of like the Academy Awards for Everywhere But America. It led to an interesting chat. You were saying that it was quite exciting for you to be, uh, and you're a much awarded filmmaker really, uh, to be up in the Gold Coast at the Asia Pacific Screen Awards with uh, Blue Black up for the Youth Award uh, for film. Tell me about uh, your what's going on there.
1: Look, I
5: think the um, Asia Pacific Screen Awards are wonderful. Um I've been nominated a few times for other films I've been involved with over the years and I think that they're um, such an amazing celebration of cinema uh, from this region and have championed so many incredible films. I feel really delighted every time I get invited and nominated but it's actually the first time that in my crazy career I've been able to get here. So I'm delighted to be here. I I met with a whole panel of uh, young emerging filmmakers yesterday, which was incredible to see the future generation um, coming through. And uh, I think it's it's just such an important celebration of, of cinema. And um I'm kind of delighted to be part of it, actually.
3: It's really interesting, isn't it? Because, you know, Gold Coast, uh, a, a, it's sort of a different perspective on filmmaking in uh, Australia, really, to realize that we're part of the Asia Pacific region, which yes. encompasses 78 countries. It's quite a, I know. It, it's amazing. And it's third of the earth and half of the world's films.
5: I know. It's quite a stunning. Um, kind of celebration of of cinema from those different creative and cultural voices. And it's the perfect place to be here, you know, with, um, and so many filmmakers actually come here, but it's, um, you're absolutely right. I I didn't know those figures exactly, but that makes sense to me. And, uh, it's very powerful, um, you know, cultural voice in terms of all the diverse parts of this region. And no, I think, um, the Gold Coast should be really delighted to have these awards that have been going on for so many years here.
3: Yeah, yeah, that's right. And uh, it, co- it connects th- those awards. They, they um, make it clear that one of their jobs is to actually connect this region to uh, other um, peak film organisations in Europe and uh, in other parts of the world, which is a conduit for filmmakers.
5: That's right. Um, One of the big discussions that was had yesterday amongst a lot of the uh, emerging kind of producers and and directors was how can we all work together? And it's something that European cinema has been very good at for, gosh, 50, years, 60 years, which is how to create co-productions between different countries and something that Australia really can work on and that the um, Asia-Pacific Screen Awards helps with by bringing people here. And of course, what happens then is you have these incredible stories, which are cross-cultural. Which, as we know, um, Australia is such a rich and diverse um, culture of many, many people that have come here. And so, our stories are many and varied. And I think these kind of relationships allow our cinema to become richer with the the, um, the collaborations that happen between different countries. So, you're absolutely right. It's it's such a strong part of what happens here is that you get people coming together who can then work together and I think that uh, our industry would only be richer for that.
3: Blueback is a very interesting film because it's actually quite local to Western Australia. It's based on a Tim Winton novel uh, and there's so many elements to it which is so uh, seductive because it's about uh, uh, the sea, the culture, uh, along the sea and it's also about intergenerational connections to land uh, bringing in first nations as well as a particular fa- a family of women it, it's it's quite a fascinating film in fact
5: oh, thank you yeah I'm really delighted by the life the film is having and of course being nominated is a real um, you know a special thing for all of us who made that film, particularly in the youth film section here, which is a really um, unique part of these awards that they celebrate films for young people. Uh, and, of course, the environmental questions that the film asks and explores are so fundamental, I guess, to the big questions for all of us right now about our oceans and how important it is that they remain healthy and um you know the impact of climate change, and you know depletion of fishing stocks, and there, you know, a lot of these themes that Tim Winton deals with in his other work as well and is, um, you know, really uh, important questions that the film poses. So yeah, now we're we're delighted that um, that we're here to celebrate that film amongst some pretty awesome other films. <laughs> well, well,
3: that's the thing. That's what I, It leads us to. I mean, you've got great actors in your your film, really well known people like uh, Mio.
5: Yeah, she's great. M- Wachikowska. Yeah, she's incredible.
3: And Radna yeah. uh, Mitchell and Eric Banner. Yeah. And, of course, the big fish, the groper.
5: <laughs> <laughs> yes.
3: our but, puppet. Yeah, yeah.
5: <laughs> <laughs> Which but, is actually um, being celebrated uh, at the moment down at the Australian Maritime Museum in Sydney. If anyone's ever passing through Sydney, they should pop in. They're, they've actually got the puppet on display. And all of this um, information about how the puppet was used. And because I didn't do it with VFX, I, did, I created this incredible blue groper with a puppet. And um, so, yeah, I love that it's now being exhibited. I think the exhibition will probably tour around Australia too, which is great.
3: I have to say that that, that um, exhibition space in Sydney is uh, spectacular. It's also very um, uh, innovative, like clever. Uh, the very fact that they think that that was worthwhile as an exhibition piece and that they're astute enough to get it is great, isn't it?
5: Oh, it's fantastic. It's fantastic. And they're, you know, an amazing team there at the Australian Maritime Museum who have been doing great work in lots of areas of, um, you know, of more broader than you would just assume for a maritime museum. I think people go there because they like seeing the boats and, you know, you kind of learn about, the physical way that we navigate and um, and how Indigenous people navigate it too. is a great exhibition on that. But they're also doing a lot of um, work in the marine biology space too, which is really important.
3: Yeah, they're very clever. Um, Recommended, highly recommended. But um, (laughs) (laughs) getting back to the the films, one of the things about these particular awards the APSA Awards, is that I always discover, I mean, I always think that I see quite a few films because, you know, I do reviews, I do a whole range of things. But I always think, I'm always blown away by the by the amazing amount of films that are up for awards, which will be amazing films. And, like, you're up against a film from K- 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 Stan, uh and some films, and you, this points to what you were saying before, which is... Uh, that they make collaborations with other countries to make films. So a house in Jerusalem, uh, it's credited with Palestine, U- United Kingdom, Qatar, Netherlands and German money, right? And then Monster.
1: Know, it's
3: amazing. Yeah, Monster's got Kabutsu and Japan. I don't even know where Kabutsu is. And um, Tiger stripes, Malaysia, Taiwan, Singapore, France, Germany, Netherlands, Indonesia, Qatar.
5: <laughs> <laughs> I love it. I actually love it. I think in creative endeavours, collaborating with people from other parts of the world with different points of view just makes our work richer. And uh, it speaks of stories that are very often culturally specific to places but universal in the deep. I think we we kind of know at this moment in history that you know these deep humanist themes about how we can live you know and that we all share. So and I like hyper hyper specific cultural cinema, um, but that also speaks of universal things, um, a common humanity that we share as we navigate our time. And I and I think that this festival just celebrates that. I mean those films are all highly lauded, highly exceptional works of cinema made by great filmmaking teams and, and I love that they've got so many partners. I think Australian cinema can really learn from it. I think we, we, we don't do it as well um, and uh, there's an amazing team actually working at Screen Australia that run the co-production unit and they're really exceptional champions at this so I think for up-and-coming filmmakers it's worth looking into how to work with other countries.
3: Yeah, it's amazing. Uh, And also, like you said, I love that uh, concept that you just said so well, which is the hyper-local with universal themes. I agree with you. It's just so fascinating to find out about someone else's place.
5: Oh, it's amazing, isn't it? I mean, I, I often wonder, I mean, people have assumed because of the Hollywood system, which does very well, these universal films that just appeal to everyone, but a lot of that is about removing the points of difference to make it easier for everyone to... It's like a Big Mac. You can go anywhere in the world and eat a Big Mac and it's going to taste the same pretty much. And um, and I think a, a, the, the assumption with a lot of Hollywood cinema is that it's universal in a similar way. Whereas I think there's universi- universality in universality in hyper-culturally specific work. So I love that cinema takes you like uh, Blueback takes you to Bremer Bay, which is in the south, you know, south um, uh, east of uh, WA. You know, it's it's a very very remote place. Yeah, and and you just go to the so that people can watch the film and be taken to somewhere that
3: Ningaloo. Yeah,
5: Ningaloo Reef we filmed on as well and. And when I was at the Toronto Film Festival, I heard two people come out of the screening saying, we've got to find out how to go there. (laughs) So so I think cinema also has a power to um, attract people to experience parts of the world they've never been, which I think is what I I always love.
3: What you're talking about is ties to the reason for why there are so many Hollywood movies with violence in them, because it was shown that violence is a... um, Internationally, socially uh, acceptable trope while sex and uh, intimate relationships aren't.
5: That's interesting. That's, yeah, it's really interesting. The, um, yeah. yeah, yeah, the kind of
8: it's the way. Actually.
5: I mean, I know, yeah, it is. It's terrifying. You know, it's really, it's kind of upsetting in some ways. It's like trying to find a commonality about something. There's always been the double standard of how violence and intimacy are depicted. Um, and it's, I always find it just fascinating that we're willing to accept brutal and horrific acts of violence. Um, but showing kind of intimate moments between people get censored. <laughs> it's like the contradiction of that. It's like how to shoot someone in the head in yeah. the head. But if you show them making love, it's there's a problem. Yeah, yeah. Um but anyway, it's it's it is the contradiction. But I but I think cinema is powerful. We know that and it will always be power. I know people talk a lot about the streaming and watching things at home and, but I think going to the cinema, watching a work in a dark room with a collection of other people, um, having an opportunity to talk about it after you come out of the cinema. Um, and you know, think about it is it's just such a creatively powerful art form. And, uh, and I love the figures you gave about how many different countries are represented here at these awards.
3: Yeah, it's mind-blowing. Awesome. Oh, yeah. I reckon it is too. And, and uh, I know that uh, this is a side issue, but it does actually reflect something about filmmaking in general, and I'd like your opinion. You know the uh, writer's strike that they had in America, which has uh, been concluded, but one of the sticking points right to the end was this idea that the um, major... Uh, studios wanted to be able to use AI in the first draft treatments of scripts.
5: Such a strange and puzzling thing for the studios to want to do because I think we, if you think of the history of even the most commercial films that that were made, People love, you know, seeing a Steven Spielberg film, you know, like a Martin Scorsese film, you know, people love and, you know, from this part of the world, people love, you know, Jane Campion's next film, you know, it's, uh, people like we like authored work. We like to feel we don't go into an art gallery to look at paintings on the wall that have been created by a computer. We We like to look at the works of art and ponder the person um, who has created the work, and in the case of film, the creative team. So I, I'm i not scared of AI myself. I feel like there are tools, technological tools, that are available and have always become available. You know, it was the old... I remember the old joke they used to say when word processors came in, they said, yes, but I can tell that that novel was typed <laughs> rather than written. You know, it's kind of like, well... So I think technology has always been seen to be, you know, a troubling thing. I'm not anti-technology and I'm not anti-AI. I'm curious and I'm fascinated. But when it comes to creative works, I feel like the authorship of them is so critical and appealing and interesting. Do I want to see a film created by AI set in some interesting part of the world that I haven't been? No, I want to feel the work of people that went there, that fell in love with the place, that explored it and that showed it to us um, and depicted it in a culturally um, specific way. So, so I I don't know. I don't know. It really, oh, well, actually, to be seen.
3: it goes back to that um, investigation about film, you know, that uh, famous investigation of film right at the beginning uh, by um, the German philosopher, uh Where he talks about film being the most contrived um, art form that is uh, represented as being naturalistic, you know, uh, Walter. Yeah, Walter. um, Anyway, I can't remember, but anyway, he does this whole investigation into the purpose of art and and how it uh, goes relates to. Religious iconography and all the rest of it—it's all about, Mm, fascinating, yeah, about humans, you know, and and what being human. And it strikes me as being the most bizarre concept that you should divorce yourself from one of the things that humans are great at, which is culture. That's
5: right. (laughs) That's right. Yeah, I think that you know, um, that amazing TV series, Peter Jackson's amazing TV series, going back and looking at the Beatles composing all the great songs and. It, it's really interesting to be inside the room, seeing some of these great songs be created by this genius group. And we love that. We love yeah. that. We're not, we're not going back and seeing the machine that's creating that song, just coming up with it. Cause it's got a poppy riff and that it's studied all the, you know, and it, we, we're seeing human beings talk about works of great composition. I, I, I don't know. I, I think that, um, you know all of us um, that have children remember when their child brings home the first painting from Kindy and you put it on the fridge. yeah you know, it'd be a common experience for Australians. Why is that? Because we look at our little child and we look at the work that they have created at at school or kindy or pre- whatever, and and we value it. You know, and I think there's probably a lot of people that listen to you, your show. Who would probably still have some of their kids' paintings tucked oh, away, yeah. even if their kids are now in their thirties? And it, why is it? It's because we value it, you know. That I remember there was a um, a really funny thing. They they got an elephant to paint. Yeah. Uh, you might remember they, and they did these paintings, and it was such a. But no one cared about these paintings. It was more like, oh yeah, it, it can splash paint, and then was the whole thing: is this elephant elephant creative? Is this elephant or this animal? <laughs> I guess that's even more that – at least appealing because it's a living creature creating something as opposed to a computer. Yeah. But I I, I, fear, I fear the use of AI less in the kind of work I do. I feel like if you're in the superhero world or making big superhero films or whatever and I could imagine the studios could, could do a spin-off of a superhero character with 50 episodes and that a computer could probably generate the storylines for them and the plot yeah. and – and, and then AI could probably do the VFX for them and maybe at some point they might not even need actors. Yeah, know. no, that's
3: right. And, that's right. I, think that's I, what I can they're see thinking. the
5: anxiety about that.
3: Yeah, I think that's what they're talking about. I mean, uh, yeah. I, uh, the person I was talking about was Walter Benjamin and what he was, his famous work, The Work of Art in the Age of Mechanical Reproduction which okay, is, and it was written written oh God, in 1935, right? So <laughs> <there you go. laughs> this is a there man who really did think, but he also <laughs> has a, a very sad history because being Jewish, he actually committed suicide so that the Nazis wouldn't get him first. So oh, it's a terrible, terrible dear. story. Here he is a dear, person who's dear, one dear. of the most important brains of our, of the 20th century. So it just tells you oh, how terrible dear. things can be. But anyway, yeah, by the
5: yeah, what a lot. You know, those kind of—I always think that you know the some of the great thinkers that are years ahead of us all. Really, you know, it's like what else might he have challenged or contemplated? And so, I've always loved science fiction. Actually, the great science fiction authors who kind of speculate about us and look to the future. Yeah. But I'm not—I'm an optimist, ultimately, about technology. So. I feel optimistic that we will battle it out a bit now but find a way to use technology to help us.
3: Yeah, Um, well really we did go off the track but um, and it's November the 3rd (laughs) in the morning and tonight is the night that you're going to get or not get the award uh, for your best film but uh, for the best film in the uh, youth section of the APSA but I mean you've got lots of uh, uh, great challenges, uh, uh, you know, other films that are being put forward as well.
5: I'm never really too worried with winning or not winning awards. I think being part of a group of filmmakers as strong as this and um, it's just delightful. And I think it's really these awards are about get people getting together and more celebrating each other's work than feeling competitive around with each other. But no, no, it's amazing. Very, very happy to be here and great to chat to you. Thank you so much. I
8: want
1: to try Wanna give free therapy out in the park? Go to preschool
0: When I was new to Melbourne I found a food not bombs flyer on the road and I had like this fist with a carrot and carrots are my favorite vegetable. Yeah, I think they were asking for help doing stuff and I got in touch.
6: We I guess rescue food
3: that would otherwise go to waste.
5: I like the aspect of sharing food and um, not making anyone feel obligated to pay anything for it.
3: We make a real point at Food Not Bombs
5: of involving everyone who wants to be involved in whichever part they want to be involved in.
2: For more information, go to fnbmelb.noblogs.org. Food Not Bombs is a 3CR supporter. Food
6: Food Not Bombs
3: You're with Annie on Solidarity Breakfast on your community radio station. We have just been chatting with filmmaker Robert Connolly about his film Blueback. Now let's hear comedian Fiona Scott-Norman, who did a set at this year's Greenleaf Comedy Debate, emceed by Tom Ballard, which asked, should we welcome our new AI overlord?
0: Please welcome Fiona Scott-Norman!
2: have made a category error by actually preparing some material tonight. Um, hi! Uh, yeah, my name's Fiona and I'm delighted to be here at the Green Left Debate where we answer the big questions. Uh, by what mechanism is Peter Dutton, that grey-faced undead racist piece of shit, uh, able to move around freely during daylight without bursting into flames? <laughs> It's the greatest achievement of the Albanese government to make us stand with our head quizzically to one side like a golden retriever pondering which hand the treat is in. <laughs> Repeating to ourselves, sure, they've approved or extended eight fossil fuel projects since they got in and are still humping up against coal like a hormonal dog despite the world burning, but he's still better than Scott Morrison, right? <laughs> And uh, if Amazon is flooded with unintelligible fake Dan Dan Brown novels generated by A.I., who can tell? (laughs) Today we are on the affirmative team. We, on the affirmative team, are arguing that we should welcome our A.I. overlords. Of course we are. When A.I. takes control and transforms humanity into a flesh battery farm to power its war machines, we will be on record as being on their side. The rest of you are going to be harvested like so much krill and turned into lubricant for robots, a tube of which is kept by Mrs. Dutton in her bedside drawer. Also, the affirmative team will win, of course, because the question is rhetorical and redundant. Should we welcome our AI overlords? Of course, I mean, they're already here. It's just good manners, even if they aren't invited. I was raised to be polite and bring out the nice crockery for guests and the top shelf biscuits. Kingston's. Replaying really ways I may have offended a guest is one of the things which keep, which wakes me up in the middle of the night. That and a bladder full of wee. In the spirit of self disclosure, I am a postmenopausal woman with impulse urination problems. Yeah, baby. Which means that I understand urgency in a way that elbow wearing a Rio Tinto t shirt clearly doesn't. But am I right, ladies? Yes, thank you. Um, The men are maybe making faces at the uh, phrase impulse urination like that is not a problem because A they never have to queue and B the world is their toilet. (laughs) But we're not here this evening to dwell on my moist gusset, although it's interesting how the palatability of that phrase shifts as you age. (laughs) Hello lads. I would gnaw on the insistency of my need to pee, which now arrives unexpectedly and violently out of nowhere. Like Northern Territory police smashing down the front door of my bladder, as though it hides a 12-year-old indigenous kid who they suspect has stolen a packet of biscuits. Raise the age, people! But the release of AI feels overwhelming. I get that. News Corp are currently using AI to generate about 3,000 local Australian news stories a week. AI-generated content was used to influence people during the lead-up to the referendum. All the more reason to embrace it, I think. The No Campaign welcomed AI with open arms and they won. Uh, let's create some fake videos of our own. Maybe Peter Dutton, Dutton showing empathy. Barnaby Joyce being faithful. (laughs) (coughs) If we acknowledge that the majority of the Herald Sun and online content is written by bots, well, to me, that relieves us of the obligation to read it. Uh,
8: There's
2: a, you know, AI is out of the box now, and, um, you know, we might as well try and harness it. Uh, And that is the important thing to do, not just kind of, um, you know, give up, And sit there watching succession in our underwear, idly snacking on our own nose goblins. (laughs) The the knowledge that we can change the world is the power behind all great human achievements. Really? Wow, okay. (laughs) Um, All right, well, Walt Disney said if you dream it, you can do it. Businessman W. Clement Stone said, Aim for the moon. If you miss, you may hit a star. Um, Clement is a good businessman, but a terrible astronomer. Uh, the moon is three hundred and eighty-five thousand kilometers away and the closest star 150 million kilometres. <laughs> what a duffer. <laughs> then there's Harriet Tubman. She was an African-American woman born into slavery who escaped and went back 13 times to rescue 70 enslaved family and friends. She said, every great dream begins with a dreamer. Always remember, you have within you the strength, the patience and the passion to reach for the stars to change the world. Um, I've got a whole lot of stuff here, which I don't have time to say. So, um... A little bit more. Um, a parable. What are you going to do? Wrestle me to the ground? Come on, Tom, you big man. All right. Um, a parable attributed to both George Bernard Shaw and a Cherokee elder goes like this Inside of me, there are two dogs, a white dog and a black dog. They fight all the time. And he was asked which dog wins. And he reflected for a moment and replied the one I feed the most. Most of us live our lives based on throwaway comments someone made to us when we were like eight, suggesting that we were, you know, not able to play the piano or maybe a bit chubby. And uh, we do not have to live our lives that way. We can choose. Do we feed the black dog or the white? Do we choose to transform the AI or not? In Melbourne, at the Cricket... (laughs) security guards have gone through a period of getting people to um, assume this position to pat them down before they go in to see whether or not they're carrying weapons. And there was um, a story a father recounted of how he was going into the MCG and a little boy, um, his little boy um, was also asked by the guard to hold their arms out like this and the little boy recognising the position um, enthusiastically hugged to the security guard. <laughs> so I just think that's feeding the white dog and real people doing real things with each other are going to allow us to harness AI and we might as well make the most of it while we've got it. Thank you. Thank you.
3: You're with Annie on Solidarity Breakfast on your community radio station 3CR. In September, South Coast Labor Council Secretary Arthur Roris was in town and gave a talk about AUKUS, the nuclear subs deal between Australia and the Americans. The horrible ramifications of the deal has been somewhat pushed from centre stage by the extremely horrible events in Palestine. However, today we revisit the issues for the South Coast and Australia generally of the
9: AUKUS deal. I thought I would make some observations I thought I'd get to the heart of the matter which is the questions around motivations and key objectives of what has been proposed and then signed and what the ramifications are from here so and in doing that I'll start with a reference to our own region in the Illawarra on the south coast As the Secretary of the South Coast Labor Council, my first job is to be a voice for working people and the working class on the south coast of New South Wales. And as I point out to some, very few these days as this progresses and people understand the ramifications, I don't have to explain why, but to those who ask, I simply say this, that the... The phrase, peace is union business, is not new. It has been borne out of the very tragic events throughout our history where the blood of the working class is spilt at the altar of imperialism. And in our region, which includes the port of Port Kembla, it has a special significance, given that it was the site of one... Of the most significant, internationally significant struggles against that imperialism and the struggle against fascism prior to World War II, when in 1938 a very brave and principled group of workers under the Waterside Workers' banner and their union refused to load pig iron was bound for Japan in 1938 because it was bound for the military-industrial complex, if we use those terms these days, of the emerging imperial power in Japan, its annexation of China, and in particular Manchuria, and the misery and the Thousands and thousands of deaths and atrocities that were committed there. I say this as a prelude to what I'm about to say so that you can get an understanding of the disbelief and concern and, frankly, sense of outrage that in a place like this in Port Kembla, where those wharfies stood up to the imperialism and fired the first shots in an undeclared war against fascism, that this should be the port that the military establishment should favour to base a staging post for the US Navy to start the next and possibly final conflict. Port Kembla holds its place high in the union movement, in the working class and in the international movement for peace. Every year on the 15th of November, Dalfram Day, we acknowledge, commemorate, and celebrate those events. When a group of wharfies backed in by the entire union movement and the stood-down steel workers over Christmas who refused to cross the picket lines, and then the working class of the entire country, who pitched in and realised what was at stake taught Bob Menzies to be then known as Pig Eye and Bob thereafter a lesson, taught him a lesson that the working class that is expected to spill their blood to defend the interests of the imperialists demanded a seat at the table of foreign policy. We jump to recent developments in AUKUS And let me play back to you the events as we saw them. When we woke to the news one morning that the then Prime Minister Scott Morrison had this brain bubble, thought bubble, (laughs) that uh, he was going to set up an alliance called AUKUS, many people laughed. Those of us that have seen some of these things before knew that these are not the creations of a madman. These things are the designs of superpowers. It is no accident that this, from the moment it was announced as an idea, quickly became a reality. And the then opposition leader, we are told, was given 24 hours to sign or be forever wedged in a forthcoming election. Those events now are fairly well known as is the disbelief that it was committed to, they say, within those 24 hours. What is not recognised is the work that was done beforehand and the notion that the United States Navy government military industrial complex would ever let an Australian Prime Minister dictate... An agreement like AUKUS between three countries is so absurd that it's not funny. It's not even a joke, let alone a fool like Morrison. Let alone a fool like Morrison. No-one really believes that. And now, of course, we realise that this was years in the planning and the moment was not chosen by Morrison so much as by the puppeteers. Because in that moment they locked in the current and future Prime Minister of Australia and their respective governments. If you were a a bookie, you couldn't take odds on that one. They secured both options in one hit. Many of us suspected that the soon-to-become Prime Minister would find some way of wriggling out of this situation. What we call exit ramps, politely, these days, were plenty to be found. The cost, the detail, the implications, the time frame, the stupidity of it. There were numerous ways in which it could have been done. If not in one hit, then certainly in a few rounds at least. But what we got instead in San Diego was a doubling down of the strategy and a further commitment with a price tag that would be paid for by the working class in this country. That was something that had surprised even seasoned observers as to how far, as to how far the dignity of a government and a country could slide so quickly in those moments. What happened two days beforehand was not well known and didn't become relevant till much later. You see, two days before that announcement in in San Diego, and before the deal was signed, three, at least three, anonymous leaks to the ABC at the most senior of levels confirmed to the ABC what many of us had been told, that Port Kembla had in fact been selected. As the site. It was the favoured site. It was a month or two later that we discovered that it wasn't much of a secret at all, as I was leaked a copy of a very public magazine called Stars and Stripes, that some of you may know as being the military magazine in the United States for all their service people. And it had an article that was pretty clear that it was going to be Port Kembla and extended the invitation to the entire i think it's the seventh fleet of the pacific it won't be just there for submarines they said it's there for all of us and by the way this is what the place looks like great beaches great hospitals great schools and a stone's throw away from sydney this was in may 2022 I say this because this is the evidence that we have that they know damn well where they want to put these things. And the question remains unanswered as to whether what happened since then has made any change to their plans. I'll leave that story there for one moment and I'll come back to it at the end but I want to now look at some aspects of what it is exactly that has been committed to. Without going in chapter and verse, I want to start with the obvious question, and that is that a change and a review of Australia's strategic posture and assets and mid and long-term trajectory, if I can use that term, that is based on a perceived threat to our national and strategic interests 30 years in the future to warrant the expenditure of at least $360 billion for technologies that the reviewers and the governments that agreed to them say they are so confident will be relevant and appropriate in 30 years' time. It is something that has not only raised questions amongst uh, the broader community, but more importantly, amongst the military itself. And I want to start here to indicate the depth, the depth of um, uh, the problem here for the government in to try and sell this with any integrity. I would never in my life have imagined that I would have been a co-signatory to a full-page ad in the Australian Financial Review with a former head of the Australian Air Force. They can label me as a troublemaker, lefty, communist, whatever they want to say from Wollongong. But they can't level that at the former chief of the Australian Air Force, who raised those very same questions publicly in a full-page ad and was told and acknowledged and accepted he didn't have a problem being a co-signatory with me and former Premiers and Foreign Ministers and others. That indicates to you just how far the Government has gone with this in implausibility. Total implausibility that those three questions about a 30 year time frame when our assets may be available to use and deploy and the knowledge with some certainty as to the strategic situation facing this country in 30 years much less who they perceive to be the enemies are and what their technological assets might be. And then, of course, is the killer blow, and I'd hate to use their their terminologies, but this one, as the Americans say, doesn't hunt. This one doesn't hunt. The idea that you can invest so much in assets that are designed to give you the edge on the other side of the world when, and these are not my words and I certainly don't hold this view of our strategic threats, but the internal military assessments would have regarded Indonesia, frankly, as a more immediate threat. I don't regard it that way, I've got to make this clear. But their own internal threats would have regarded other places as a more significant security concern for this country than China. It is that far down the list more than the usual weight is placed on the question of motivation. If it's not for that reason, then what? And this is where I say to people, have a look at what the stated, the publicly stated objectives and projections of the US Navy have been Frankly, since the 50s, 60s, 70s, since the domino theory more specifically came into being, and since Vietnam in particular, the United States Navy has always wanted a greater presence on the east coast of this country. They've made no secret of it. The question arises that if we're not going to get assets for another 30 years, what are we going to do in the meantime if this is what we need to actually fight China and deploy our assets up there? Well, the answer is very simple. It follows that the United States will have to base its assets here at our future nuclear submarine bases. That's the staging post. That's the place they go. Why? Because the Australian government will argue that we need some coverage and some defence in the meantime, and we need someone to train our own people. They've already said that. It won't happen overnight, and they need a transition period. It'll start with the training. It'll start with the preparations. It will start within a 10-year time frame, they say, which could become earlier, in terms of building a base for nuclear submarines. And if ours won't come in the next 30 years, They'll need something in there to train our submariners for the future and to build up that pipeline of knowledge, of assets and of skills. The objective all along here has been about using and getting around the laws in this country which do not allow foreign military bases and installations. This is the objective. We may never get nuclear submarines with an Australian flag on them. I'm putting to you that with this military posture and with this agreement, there is one certainty. We will get American nuclear submarines in these bases well before, if ever, with Australian submarines. Why do we say that? Because the Americans are already using that argument internally with Congress and their Senate because they're finding it hard to even pass the bill that they need to, to authorise the sale of their existing clunkers, as I call them, and to build new ones. They need to actually pass that through their Congress. And what do they say when they're asked? Their answer is, look, we know that we can't produce enough nuclear submarines for our strategic needs and interests and our capacity, but don't worry. If we sell some to Australia, it won't make any difference because they will be ours. They are saying this right now in Capitol Hill, in their parliaments, in America, and they've been widely reported as saying that.
3: You're with Annie on Solidarity Breakfast on your community radio station 3CR. We are listening to a talk Arthur Warris, Secretary of the South Coast Trades and Labor Council, gave in September at the Castle Hill Hotel in North Melbourne.
9: Well, the biggest question that arises out of this is the one assurance that our Defence Minister, Richard Miles, gave to the Australian people is that whilst there's an Australian flag on top of that nuclear submarine, its chain of command will be to an Australian commander. Well, that doesn't apply if we're not going to get those submarines for 30 years, if ever, and what we're going to get is American submarines with, with the American flag on top But it says something else, that those ports that we are saying it's totally safe and don't believe the arguments and the the, uh, scary stories and other things that the locals are telling you, it'll all be fine because they won't be nuclear-armed submarines. Well, if those submarines aren't going to be here for another 30 years and the submarines and frigates and other things that we get from the US Navy have got an American flag, it means that they won't confirm or deny carrying nuclear weapons. So what I'm putting to you is that the, Australian, the Defence, our Defence Minister cannot hold that promise to the Australian people because they will not have an Australian flag on them, let alone the argument of even if they did, they would be under the command of the US fleet. We don't even have to go that far. We're not even going to get them for another 30 years, and they're predicting conflict with China as early as three years. So that whole notion of sovereignty comes into play. That is why, in our region, we have said, and I've made a point of it at every opportunity, that is why we say that when the US Navy comes in, call a spade a spade. They've got no right to even call it an Australian nuclear submarine base. It will, for all intents and purposes be a US naval facility in Port Kembla, if that's where they choose to go. And the only Australian flag will be up there for our posture. And as I said jokingly, it's probably going to be made in China, ironically. Once the US Navy comes in, they don't just take a couple of parking spots, they take your port. And as one anonymous military Uh, person told me if they're going to send nuclear submarines to Port Kembla and these things are designed to be invisible the only time your enemy is going to know where they are is when they come into their home port that is where your nuclear target comes from I knew that much what I didn't know, which I should have is when he says to me and you know what You reckon we are going to send our nuclear submarines to you in a commercial civilian port without missile batteries and without air defences? You're dreaming. We're not here just to take your port and put our submarines in. We're here to defend our submarines. This exclusion zone is not exclusion zone within your port. It is your port. We will let you in when we want you in. And we won't let anyone else in or out. And if you think I'm joking, have a look at the recent terrible accident up in the north where those four, five kids basically uh, went down in that helicopter. Did you notice that not one journalist was able to report anywhere near the scene? Well, did you know that they weren't allowed on the island? They had to go and report from across the water. And do you know why? Why? Because under the agreements that we now have with the US military, they were able to exclude that whole island. What do you think they would do with eight or ten or more nuclear submarines? This in a harbour that is a thriving port of steel reduction, inputs and outputs for steel making, that is going to be the hub of our renewable technologies. That's where we're going to be ship them in, provide the steel to make the foundations and bases. The New South Wales Treasury, and this is just one port, tells us $43 billion is earmarked. Not my numbers, New South Wales Treasury, in renewable investment, and all of them centred around our port. What hope do we have if it gets taken over by the military-industrial complex? These are the reasons... Why the local people of the Illawarra and Port Kembla and Wollongong have told the federal government that whatever else they do with AUKUS, that we're not going to let the military of the United States take our port to take our opportunity for the jobs of the future and put a nuclear target on the backs of our entire region. That's why we say that this isn't just about conscription anymore. And I use the term purposely. This is about conscripting an entire region into the war machine of the United States. It's not just about the people directly involved. They take your port and you are left fighting for the job of servicing them in a place like many places that's short of housing that is short of so many things at the moment, we're going to take resources away from that to actually house and feed the US Navy. These are the real questions and the burning issues. And none, I've got to say, more pressing than two things. One, that question of sovereignty. Sovereignty not just as a national issue, we look at it as a community issue. And when it came to the fore, And the government said, I think someone said stupidly, this is Arthur's War. Because I was the, doing my job as the voice of working people. And we said, you know what? We'll have May Day. We'll have the May Day down at Port Kembla, and we'll ask the people. If they're with us, they can turn up. If they're okay with it, you stage your own rally in support. It was the biggest May Day we've ever seen in our lives. Thousands of people filled the streets and Unionists came from everywhere in solidarity. Things changed from then. The government then talked about we don't have to make a decision for some time and many people are telling us privately there's no way on earth we're going to go back there. We're not so sure because one thing we do know that the US military is not going to consider a May Day rally in Port Kembla or what the Australian government thinks or a few local politicians who might feel a little bit threatened by such a development I know my place, I'm the Secretary of the South Coast Labour Council but I'm the Secretary of a region that has a history of thinking and acting locally but being part of an international struggle, an international struggle, just as our forefathers and mothers did in 1938 with the Dalfram, just as we always have That's our commitment. And all we can ask from all of you is solidarity and to do what you can to expose this blight, this blight and this dark cloud hanging over the working class in this country.
3: Stand in solidarity with Palestine this Sunday.
7: With the most devastating attack ever launched on the people of Gaza, it's time for all of us to stand in solidarity with the Palestinian people.
3: Israel has waged war on the Palestinians for the last 75 years. The Nakba, ethnic cleansing, occupation of the West Bank, East Jerusalem and Gaza. Israel has now imposed a total blockade on Gaza and declared war, stopping food, electricity and fuel and launching an all-out attack.
7: We have to mobilise to show our support for Palestine. 12pm State Library this Sunday.
3: Rally to demand freedom and justice for Palestine. No war on Gaza. Free
7: Palestine Melbourne is a 3CR supporter.
3: That's it for Solidarity Breakfast this week. Next week will be the third in our summer series of programs. So till then, keep safe. Bye for now.
1: The revolution will not get rid of the nub. The revolution will not make you look five pounds thinner because the revolution will not be televised, brother. There will be no pictures of you and Willie May pushing that shopping cart down the block on the dead run or trying to slide that color TV into a stolen ambulance. NBC will not be able to predict the winner at 832 on report from 29 District. The revolution will not be televised. The revolution will not be televised, will not be televised, will not be televised, will not be televised. televised. The revolution will be no rerun, brothers. The revolution will be live.
0: You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia.